Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. I'm sort of coming to this place in my life where I'm accepting a bit of a different body than what I have lived in for the first 30 years of my life. I'm coming to a place where I'm at peace with it. I don't hate it. I'm learning to love it. The frustrating part of this whole process for myself and for many women is just the fact that you're not listened to or you're told like you're crazy, it's in your head, this is normal, don't worry about it. And it takes a long time for somebody to actually start listening. Hey everyone, it's Meredith and you're listening to the Afternoon Snack Podcast. Today, we are excited and honored to sit down with our longtime friend and peer in the science-based nutrition and fitness coaching space, Beth Bacon. I met Beth about 10 years ago through the very tiny world of competitive CrossFit. Beth has spent over a decade of her life immersed in the health and fitness industry. She is a two-sport collegiate athlete and has since competed in bodybuilding, CrossFit, and holds a national record in Olympic weightlifting. She co-founded Maui Athletics, a fitness and nutrition coaching company with her husband, Dr. Alan Bacon. She works full-time as a clinical research manager and knows a thing or two about research. Beth has also been very open about her experience with early onset menopause and her struggle to get help, get answers, and get validation from the medical system. Like us, Beth also works with many women who struggle in the menopause transition. So in today's episode, we are going to talk both about her personal experience and about her experience working as a coach with women who are going through menopause. Menopause can be a really frustrating time because there is so much that we don't know about women's bodies and women's health. And we are often hindered in our understanding by a society and medical system that does not prioritize or respect the experience of women as they age. We think this is a very important topic, and we want to add our voices to the growing collective of people speaking about menopause and against the neglect of women's health. Let's get to it. Beth Bacon, woo! how the heck are you? I am good. I'm living the island life, man. I can't complain. Yeah. Yeah. Maui. I don't know many That's people right. that would complain about Maui. No. It is really hot here right now, though. I will tell you that. But I can't, you know, first world problems. I can't complain too much. But it's the type of thing where I just I don't want to be outside anytime between 10 a.m. and 4 p.m., which is literally the whole day. Most of the day. <laughs> what is, we'd, we would go in like January. What's, what is hot by Maui standard? Well, so temperature wise, it's not terrible. It's probably in the upper 80s, low 90s. So I know that people are gonna be like, what are you talking about? Mm. But the, the UV index is what kind of kills you here. So when you go outside around lunchtime, it just, it feels like you're actually cooking and yeah. it doesn't matter if, you know, if you have sunscreen on, you can have SPF 55 and you will be toasty in about 15 minutes it's just it's just brutally hot yeah directly in the sun yeah there's no spf that is high enough for me Mm -mm. i think Mm -mm. (laughs) i could put 70 on and that still wouldn't do it shade yeah shade is the best option here really Shade (laughs) indoors that's crazy and then like arizona is breaking records with like over 110 degrees or something i listened to a podcast last week and the guy the scientist basically said like most of Arizona probably shouldn't be inhabited by humans and I was like well isn't that just the most human thing ever like living <laughs> yeah living in- living where we shouldn't <laughs> yeah and then complaining about it <laughs> that's like it's true that's the human it's experience. true 
Have you ever been to to Phoenix when it's really hot like that? Like with the with 110, it's brutal. You can't even get like you walk outside of your car to go into a store and it's like you can't even breathe. It's terrible. And Merida, I mean, I know you're from North Carolina, so you know the the difference between like the the dry heat and the moist heat. Yeah. But it's I don't know. I'd actually rather have the humidity yeah. than have just the baking. There's just something about feeling like you're being cooked yeah. alive that it's, just it feels closer mm-hmm. to death. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Like it could could happen at any moment. Yep. Yeah. Oh, man. So you moved from North Carolina to Maui. How many years has that been? In 2020. So we're coming up three to four years now. So it's been it's been a while. It's been quite a transition. When we first got here, it was sort of right in the middle of COVID. So everything was shut down, which was sort of nice because you go to the beaches and there's literally nobody there. So you did feel like you kind of had the whole island to yourself, but then you couldn't really like go out to eat and the grocery stores weren't really stocked. So it was it was hard getting here and then having to like set up your whole house or if you wanted to get a contractor to come to do work on your house, there was nobody working. There was nobody here. It was definitely an adjustment, but now that everything is kind of back to normal, it's awesome. We yeah, love it. That's cool. And you yeah. had like, basically put that into motion many years before you actually made the move. We did. Yeah. We actually bought our house in 2017 mm-hmm. and good old Trotter P, <laughs> my my dog, he yeah. was diagnosed with congestive heart failure when we actually were going through the process to get him moved here because moving a dog here is, this is a rabies-free island. So to get an animal on island is extremely difficult and you have to jump through all these hoops and go all through this red tape. And we were starting that process with him and the vet told us that he was in congestive heart failure and was basically had six months to live. So we're like, all right, we'll let old boy live out his best days here in North Carolina and then we'll go. And he lived for three. (laughs) That fucker. That is so Eating nothing but McDonald's. He he lived for three more years on McDonald's and Bojangles. You're like, he can eat whatever he wants. These are his final days. And you're like- He loved it. At some point you're like, should we stop that? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. What an emotional roller coaster. It was. Yeah. It was a really weird time. But (laughs) yeah, we we honeymooned here and Alan asked me after we left, he's like, would you like to live there eventually? And you don't, that's not a hard sell for a a water girl like me and a beach baby like me. So I I said, yeah, let's do it. And we just sort of happened to be like, we, we would look at homes every now and then and see if we found one that was something that we could afford and something, you know, in a a good location. And he just happened to go online one day and just found our house and sent me the link. And I was like, let's do it. So we literally bought it. We did not see the house. We did not come and take a look at it. We put an offer down and we got the home within a couple of days. I mean, that's how fast stuff moves here. Yeah. It was very fast. Yeah. That's awesome. Very scary. No, I know. But that's how that's how the best decisions are made. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah, seems like it's going well. We're having you on. Yeah, to talk a little bit about menopause. So you obviously Mm -hmm. you work in the fitness and nutrition space and you have for many years. And we've wanted to have you on the podcast for a long time because we just share so much of our philosophy and our messaging. And I knew it would be a good conversation. And then you shared publicly a year or so ago that you had Mm -hmm. basically been experiencing early onset menopause transition. 
which is something I think is actually, it's not super common, but I do think it happens. And it's just, it's one of those like, we don't talk about that. Right. So it was cool to see you share about that. And we'll certainly get into that a little bit too. But I thought I would share some statistics that are just, it's a little bit maddening. So the menopause space is frustrating, which we'll get into. It often gets compared to men's health and rightfully so, because women represent about 50% of the population, but certainly don't get 50% of the attention from a medical standpoint or a research standpoint. So these are some statistics just to like piss everybody off before we get into this conversation. <laughs> so the statistic on on men who experience erectile dysfunction, let's just start with that. 18% of men will experience erectile dysfunction. Over the last four years, the Department of Defense spent $294 million on erectile dysfunction drugs. So this is in contrast to menopause, which is experienced by approximately 100% of women, (laughs) not 18, 100%. It impacts, obviously, our lives, sexual experience for up to 20 years. So despite that, the statistic on women is that 73% of women are never treated for their menopause symptoms and are often told that it's a natural process. And I would counter that by saying, you know what is also a natural process? Not being able to get a boner when you're 70 years old. Mm -hmm. I think they're both, we're going to go down that path. I think. Yeah. Yeah. So that's just sort of, that sets the stage, like 20 years of, of suffering. A lot of women do suffer pretty mightily is an acceptable outcome for our society. And I don't actually think that's an acceptable outcome for our society. So there's a big pushback in the space now to learn more about it to share more information. And like one of the, the benefits of the, the internet is that we can share information uh, a lot more readily and then just continue to kind of push the research forward. So I was wondering if maybe you would talk about your experience a little bit before we get into the background on menopause. Sure. So I actually started experiencing symptoms of what we would call perimenopause when I was in my early 30s. So very early really, really horrific night sweats and hot flashes to the point where it's not like you just have a little bit of sweat on your upper lip or, you know, in your elbows or behind your knees. We're talking, I can wring my hair out. It looks like I just went swimming or I can, you know, I have visible sweat marks on my clothing type of deal. To me, that just wasn't something I'm like, this is not normal. I, a 32 year old woman should not be sweating through her, her bed sheets at night. And it got to the point where it started to impact my sleep. So when you're waking up a couple of times in the middle of the night, just drenched in sweat, I mean, I went from getting, you know, seven to eight hours of pretty quality, pretty steady sleep to maybe three to four hours if I was lucky. And that's back when I was competing in CrossFit. Mm -hmm. So I saw a huge decline in my strength numbers and everything that I was doing for endurance, aerobic capacity, all that kind of stuff. I just couldn't, I felt like I couldn't keep up with anybody because I couldn't recover. Yeah. And I went to multiple doctors. This, This was the really frustrating part for me was I went to multiple physicians all over the state of North Carolina from the top hospitals. So Duke, UNC, Rex, Wake, all these top of the line places. And I was always told you're too young. Mm. Like this is normal. Like having hot flashes is just kind of a normal part of being a woman. You're too young to be experiencing menopause. So we're not going to do anything for you was essentially (laughs) what I was told. Wow. And it was, let's wait until you're 40 and then kind of see where you are. If you're still miserable, then we'll talk about it. We'll run some blood tests, which 
we'll get into later. You're like, um, cool, we'll kind of, in eight years. <laughs> yeah. And, I mean, that was basically it. I was basically just told, like, just suffer for another eight years and then maybe we'll start listening to you. <laughs> the, the prime of your life, just, just suck right. it up. <laughs> right. Just sweat to death yeah. every night. It's fine. It's fine. So I actually did not really get treatment until I moved to Maui, of all places, because Maui has horrific healthcare. Yeah. And my physician here is actually a DO. She's not an MD. She's a DO. Hmm. But she is a, a North American menopause society practitioner, which means that she's following the NAMS guidelines. So I went to her just because it, it was starting to get really, really bad. And she listened to me and prescribed me hormonal therapy right away yeah. just from my symptoms. Yeah. The frustrating part of this whole process for myself and for many women is just the fact that you're not listened to or you're told like you're crazy. It's in your head. It, this is normal. Don't worry about it. And it takes a long time for somebody to actually start listening to you. And that's why I started talking about it on social media, because I think it's an incredibly important conversation to have, especially for younger women that may be starting to feel some of these symptoms, but may not be connecting the dots yet that they actually might be starting perimenopause, which can last up to a decade. Yeah. You know? If you if you start it early enough, it can last long enough. Yeah. So, and I'm sure that there are plenty of women. I've had a number of them in my inbox talking to me about symptoms that they're having and issues that they're facing. And a lot of them sound like perimenopause symptoms and they can't get anybody to listen to them. So that's yeah. why I started talking about it. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's, it can be quite a long transition, like four to 10 years on average. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times I do think you're, it's just kind of brushed off, especially when you're younger, if you're starting when you're younger. But then even during, I think there are a lot of people who they take that to their doctors and they say, I'm experiencing this. They list off all the side effects if they if they feel empowered to talk about that kind of thing. And the doctors or medical professional, whoever, you know, just kind of brushes it off like, well, yeah, that's what happens. Okay. See you later. It's normal. You're expected to to just kind of go through it and suffer. Like Yeah. You know, it, but you have to bring with you you know, to your doctor, all of these symptoms, like everything that you're experiencing, like I'm experiencing hot flashes, night sweats, vaginal dryness, I'm experiencing low energy, I have headaches, I have joint pains, like all of these things where literally like a dude can walk into the doctor and be like, uh, my, uh, can't get it up. My, my, <laughs> and the guy's like, oh, you need Vi Viagra. And like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's so easy. <laughs> they didn't even have to make words come out of their mouth yeah, and they can yeah. walk out of there with a prescription. <laughs> Yeah, it's really frustrating. Well, the symptom is a little bit more clear. And then the prescription is also much more clear due to the research. Yeah, yeah that's like, true. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was, Viagra was originally like a heart drug. And it yeah. had this, this side the effect. The side of, effect of giving you a boner for like eight hours. <laughs> yeah. And they're like, <laughs> Pfizer's like, hang on a minute. <laughs> we got something here. <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite quotes, I know we both really appreciate Jen Gunter, who's a yes. OB, and she's written a, a really good book called The Menopause Manifesto. Which oh, is where that's like, yeah. that's my Bible. I reference that thing constantly. Yeah. It is so it is a wealth of information. Yeah. So, so much good information in there. If you feel like I have no idea what's going on with my body, I've recommended that one to basically everybody yep. who comes at me with the Galveston diet. I'm like, no, no, no. No. Nope. Put that nope. back on the shelf. Actually, <laughs> put that in the garbage and read Jen's book instead. But she has this great quote that says, it should not require an act of feminism to know how your body works, but it does. And that's kind of where we're at is you really have to mm -hmm. advocate for yourself. But I think a lot of people, and when you think about the way that we learn about health as kids, 
I don't remember really even learning that much about puberty from a female perspective, like what your body's going through. So I think that there's a big miss on just women's health. And, you know, if you don't learn about puberty, which is a, you know, menopause is kind of hormonal chaos and puberty in reverse. How are we going to know about menopause? Right. right. We learn more about the biology of frogs in high school than we do about <laughs> our own. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm reading uh, this book, Good for a Girl by Lauren I can't remember the last name, but it's basically she's a an elite runner and she kind of talks about her story coming up in the field of running from being like an adolescent through teenage through college and experiencing all these changes in her body. And when she was very young, she was just as good as the boys and then basically started like getting just crushed by these boys and like didn't understand why. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, starts gaining weight in college and like coaches are telling her like, you know, you need to look more fit. And like fit was kind of the ideal compliment that you should get. And like what people would call her healthy and she wouldn't like that because that meant fat basically, right. and especially in the running world. But they had no idea about how puberty for females impacts performance. And instead they're feeling like, well, why can't I do what I used to, to be able to do? And it's mm-hmm. crazy because I still, that that's still the case yep. many years later. Like now she's, she's gone through her career and she's a, a running coach yeah. and she's like, that's still the case for adolescents yep. like, and, and high schoolers and college athletes and women all over the place in every stage, which is crazy. It's the same shit, different decade in your life yep. for women. Yep. But yeah, I mean, menopause, like I, I'm not a, I'm not a doctor. None of us are doctors, but we do. I think I am. I'm a jurist doctor. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> that's, but that's why I'm not participating as much as you guys in the conversation. Yeah. Law doctors. <laughs> doctor of the law. <laughs> yeah. I guess like in really simple terms, can you talk through what menopause actually is like the, the transition and then. Sort of like, I guess, to get a little more specific with what it is that we're actually talking about, and then we'll move on. Yeah. So perimenopause is the period leading up to cessation of your period. So if you go one year, 12 full months without having a period, you have essentially gone through menopause. The name in and of itself is a bit of a misnomer. It implies that there's just this sort of like break, and then we're going to kind of get back to normal. And that's not the case. It's an actual transition that we're going through. And you can live almost a whole other lifetime after you go through menopause with this other body that has suddenly taken over your own. But really the definition is 12 months without having a period. Yep. And anything before that is considered like peri or pre and then after your last period, which I guess isn't typically identified until like a year after, then they say like, yeah, you're definitely done. We think that's considered post-menopause. Post. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's this myth that the reason like menopause is not something that women norm like naturally would experience. And the reason why we experience is it because we're living longer, like past reproductive years. And so, but I'm like, that's such a bullshit myth because (laughs) what does it mean that like, you know, essentially your ovaries dry up and then you're supposed to die. You're just no good anymore. Like you have no value and no worth. Right. But men can keep on, they can go on living until they're 70 and procreate. I hate it here. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And really like aside from when you go back and look at lifespan data, yeah, like infant mortality is super high, but the data I think is like, if you made it to 10 years old or 15, like there's a good chance you were going to make it to 60 plus. That's not reality. Like this is something that we've been going through 
for a long time. And there's, you know, when you compare us to to chimpanzees, like a nut, like other primates, they do die right after their reproductive years are over. But there's also, I think, ki- like killer whales live beyond reproductive years, dolphins, mm-hmm. other animals are, are out there. So there's obviously like an evolutionary prerogative for women living longer in a species that has complex social hierarchies, which we certainly right. do. Like, and there's a lot of women bring a lot of value into society. Even now, we would be able to bring more if men would get out of our way. But um, <laughs> yeah, we're not this is really turning into a more of a feminist. <laughs> there's a real feminist spin on this you know podcast. What, well, Jen, Jen Gunter is like, she's really big on like she's she is a feminist mm-hmm. and she talks a lot about how the patriarchy and patriarchal systems have kind of created what we're seeing in the menopause space today, which is let's not talk about it. Women are no good after their ovaries are dried up. Like it's a very patriarchal thing yeah. that has occurred. It's true. Yeah. I, I mean, you can just see just based on how you're treated in the doctor's office that you're crazy or you're depressed. Like that's depression is a big one where you go and present these symptoms and they'll tell you you're, you're just, you just need some, you know, Zoloft or something yes. like that. And it's you're like, no, no, I don't need Zoloft. No, I need medicine. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that's a really common one. And then HRT is a really interesting topic because that one originally, I think, came out of kind of a patriarchal, let's prevent aging space in like the 1970s. But then it actually, that's very like important medicine and you can live better with chemistry and HRT for women going through menopause is a prime example of that. And then I think the statistic, and I know we can talk about this because you're, you're like a proponent of it in the right population too. The statistic was in the year 2000, up to 40% of women between the ages of 50 and 59 were on HRT. And as of 2010, that number was less than 7%. So in 10 years, it went from 40% to 7% because of the some of the research that came out of the Women's yep. Health Initiative and yep. all of the, the scaries that were talked about then with breast cancer risk and that kind of thing. So anyways, I, I thought you could share a little bit about your experience with HRT and kind of your stance on it, which I'm sure aligns with ours. HRT has really undergone a, a very interesting sort of metamorphosis over the years, just in terms of, you know, to your point, in the beginning, pretty much everybody was prescribed estrogen. It was seen as the fountain of youth, like, let's keep these ladies young and supple. And that was sort of how it was marketed, that it's just going to keep you young forever. And then all those other studies came out and they were cancer risks that were just being, you know, overblown and everybody was then terrified. My mother actually kind of got swept up in all of that when she was going through menopause herself. She was on HRT going through menopause and she loved it. She, Mm. you know, cause she would like, she'd be ready to just go stand naked in the freezer whenever she would have hot flashes. She said they were that bad and I believe her. And she, then her doctor took her off when all that stuff started coming out about, you know, cancer risks and that kind of thing. And she said that she wishes that she had been able to stay on it the whole way through because the second half of her menopausal experience was pretty terrible. Yeah. I got prescribed birth control. So I'm not on what you would consider sort of classic menopause hormonal therapy, MHT. I'm taking estrogen and progesterone via a birth control pill because I am still getting my period. So you don't necessarily want to give somebody who is still menstruating menopausal hormonal therapy. So I'm getting my estrogen levels increased from birth control. What my doctor and I will do is over the course of the next 10 years, we'll essentially just kind of see how it goes based on symptomology. So this is a big symptomology and prescription of hormones is a huge 
area of confusion for a lot of people, even a lot of doctors. So doctors that don't really adhere to the North American menopause society standards will go to and check your, your bloods. So they'll do a test and they'll look at your estradiol. They'll look at all of your sex hormones. But remember, if you're still menstruating, your hormones are kind of all over the place over the course of your cycle. So depending on when you have them pulled, your estrogen could look totally fine. Your estrogen could also look like it's in the tank, just depending on when during your cycle they take the blood draw. So that's why the NAMS position paper actually states we do not recommend, and it is a red flag if your physician is wanting to run a blood test to check your sex hormones, that's a red flag. My doctor never did. She asked me if I wanted to just based on my own curiosity. And I was like, I don't feel like I need to get stuck with needles. If, if this isn't what is standard of care, I don't want that. So she prescribed based on the symptoms that I was presenting with. So those hot flashes, I was extremely irritable. So if Alan even chewed on the wrong side of his mouth, I was ready to just <laughs> choke him out. <laughs> and I'm a pretty, like, I'm a very even keeled person in terms of my temperament. So I was just ready to murder And I am not like that. So the irritability and the mood changes, the night sweats. I also started gaining weight in my midsection, which for me is not an area that I normally carry really any body weight. And reading up on it, when your estrogen tanks, essentially your testosterone then is what is going to be higher and out of balance. You start to adapt a more sort of male-like fat patterning, which is midsection fat. So that's why a lot of women in menopause will start to kind of gain weight. They'll, they'll gain that belly fat. So I did start gaining some belly fat and then just the just forgetfulness. So it was more than just like I walk into a room and I forget what I went in there, in there for or I don't know where I put my car keys. Like I would literally wake up and not know what day it was. Like I would log on to my computer at work and it was a Saturday, like just stupid stuff that I that just was not normal for me. And so those were the symptoms that I went in and presented with. She immediately said, let's put you on a lower dose estrogen and start you there. See how you do. So we did that for a little bit. I was still getting the hot flashes, especially during the week of my period when I was on the placebo pills, just essentially no estrogen. I would get my hot flashes would come back with a vengeance. So we increased the dose of estrogen and she told me to essentially take it continuously. So even when I would normally have a period, I essentially skip all my periods and just keep taking it all the way through. I have some hot flashes from time to time, but they're not nearly as bad. They're not nearly as long in duration. And it's probably one or two a month versus five or six a day. Yeah. So it has made a huge difference in sleep quality and the night sweats in particular. I'm still a little bit forgetful from time to time and I can still be a little bit irritable, but those things are also much better than they were. Yeah. That's great. And I think the, yeah, the, the blood work is a really interesting and important topic because I think a lot of people we're just so conditioned to get blood work when things aren't mm-hmm. feeling right. And yeah, I think a lot of doctors sort of go that direction, but even with, with, you know, diagnosing, if you can even diagnose someone in menopause, you can't, right. Because if they just, right. you know, if they catch you on a month where you haven't ovulated, like it's just, you're basically throwing a dart and you know, it, you might present with low hormones, you might present with normal when actually, you know, you are kind of entering into that phase. And so it's not the best diagnostic tool. And then using HRT or in your case, like low dose birth control on like a symptomatic basis that can also work as a diagnostic tool too. 
-hmm. Because if you're taking, you know, what would be considered normal levels of hormone therapy with whatever type for the phase that you're in, and you're not seeing an improvement in symptoms, you know, you might also, you might have a thyroid condition or something else going on. Because I think what's unfortunate for many women in their 40s and 50s is that a lot of symptoms and things get chalked up to just being in menopause when actually mm -hmm. we could be misdiagnosing mm -hmm. and, and missing certain cancers or thyroid yep. conditions that will potentially go untreated for many years. Yep. And so that's a great point. Yeah. And those are things that we do still regularly check. You know, I still do get my annual blood work done just to kind of make sure that everything else is is looking good. And I have had since going on birth control, I have actually had my hormones tested just as part of my annual exam outside of what I'm doing with my GYN. And my estradiol was like zero. It is so low that it's not even really registered. <laughs> <laughs> so you're like, okay, we're so there. it's not surprising, right? Like, I mean, it just, it, but again, I mean, you know, and I'm on estrogen. So it, it just, they, they have found that it just does not match up with symptomology because I'm not really experiencing that many symptoms right now. But my estradiol, if you looked at it, you'd be like, oh, let's put her on estrogen. Like, let's give her more. Yeah. I don't need more though. No. And same thing for women that they go in and their estradiol levels are normal, but they're still having all of these symptoms. You're just going to tell them like, tough luck. Like, sorry, we're not going to give you anything. I mean, that's not, and that's why the, the menopause society standing on that is we do not do blood testing to, yeah. to diagnose. Yeah. It's really important. Let's talk a little bit about working with the menopausal population because you, you also work in the nutrition space. Your company is Maui athletics and you work, it's just you and Alan, right? Yeah. Yep. So what percentage of the population that you work with through Maui, which is in that menopause, pre-menopause sort of phase? I would say the vast majority of my female clients are in that space. I would say about 80 of them, 80% yeah. of them are in that in that space. Yeah. So about it's, it's a huge, it's a huge percentage of them. Yeah. I would say we're about the same. Mm -hmm. What's the, and I know it's hard to like speak to the experience of working with that population because literally like the experience is it varies per person. Like it's very yeah. difficult to generalize, but what, what are some of the common pain points or what do people come to you looking for? What's the experience like? The number one complaint is always the belly fatking. Mm -hmm. That's always the first, you know, and that, cause that is usually what people will notice first is putting on weight where they haven't put it on previously. They will also report having a harder time losing weight if that's what they're trying to do. And then just overall energy levels. Yeah. Those are usually the three things that they come with are just, you know, their energy is just in the, in the toilet. Yeah. And what do you tell, cause we get the same, it's, you know, I'm, I've gained weight around my midsection. I've never had that before. You know, I'm gaining weight generally. And, you know, I feel like I'm stuck in sand most days. We yeah. get a lot of like, I'm gaining weight. I have no energy, but nothing has changed regarding my nutrition or my fitness and not to invalidate how they feel. But if you're, if you're not sleeping, if your energy is really low, likely your workouts have probably changed. I mean, if you're not sleeping, a lot of other things are going to be impacted. And then, yeah, you, the way that you, your body stores fat is going to be yeah. just, I mean, that's hard to control, but there are things that I think go unnoticed. There's like as a result of what they do notice, if that makes yep. sense. Yeah. It is a very hard conversation to have because there's still ownership of things that need to take place. And a lot of times I think it's easy to just say I'm going through menopause. It's the hormones that are doing this to me. When in reality, a calorie deficit is still a calorie deficit. The law of thermodynamics still exists. You still have to be in a deficit to lose fat, you still have to be in a surplus to gain body fat. So for me, I knew right away, like I'm not 
religiously tracking food, I know for a fact that I'm probably consuming more calories than I need right now. And that's the reason for my shift in weight is because I'm I'm not in a deficit. I'm not really tracking. I own that. I know that. But if your sleep is crap, if you're not working out as hard as you normally do, your overall daily movement is probably down as well. And you may also be losing muscle mass. That is something that happens in this period of life. You do start to lose mass, which can then sort of shift your body composition to an unfavorable balance of fat to lean body mass. And that's probably the hardest message to deliver because again, it's something that the person can control. So resistance training and keeping protein intake pretty high are probably the two best things that you can do in the menopausal space, even without hormonal therapy, is making sure that you keep lifting heavy weight progressively, keep your protein intake high, and make sure that you do have an eye on how many calories a day you're consuming if fat loss is something that you are trying to achieve. If you're just trying to kind of keep homeostasis, you can obviously not be as restrictive with that. But resistance training is probably the number one place that I start with these women is making sure that they're lifting adequately. That's the easiest and best thing that people can do for themselves in this phase. Yeah. I think the way that we spin it is kind of like what you said. It can be so defeating because you're basically saying you're fighting a bit of a battle, but Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily a losing battle. There are still things in your control that you can do to help improve the situation and help Mm -hmm. make you feel better or limit the impacts that your, the change in hormonal environment is having on your body. At the same time as nutrition coaches, at least like for me and my scope, it's only so large. So it's like nutrition doesn't necessarily impact a lot of those specific hormones directly, but you Mm -hmm. can do a lot of things with your nutrition to help some of the symptoms like energy levels, maintaining muscle mass and that sort of thing. So it's not going to like, you can't eat a certain food to change your estrogen levels. That's more of like, you know, you would send someone to go see a doctor for that, like you Mm -hmm. were saying, and hopefully the right doctor that will help them. But within our scope, it's like, there are still things that you can do with your nutrition that will have a pretty significant impact and help you feel like you have a grasp on things in the direction that your body is going in. And I don't think people realize really just when their energy declines like that. And you get a little bit sad because you're sort of in this new phase and you're kind of bummed like, oh, that everything is changing. And so you just kind of get into this like you do you actually do move around less. Like I went on fewer walks with the dog when I was starting this whole thing with my doctor here in Maui. And it was something that I I noticed that about myself and about my habits that I was kind of getting down in the dumps and, you know, not doing what I was normally doing over the course of the day and getting out and being as active. And then, you know, when you're, if you're low energy, you're not performing as hard. You're not lifting as hard. You're not lifting as heavy. So that sort of plays into the, you know, the muscle loss and making sure that you're maintaining as much muscle mass as possible. There's so many things that sort of feed into this in this phase. And it's easy to start to say, this is something that I can't combat. I'm just going to let it be what it is. And this is my life now. And it doesn't have to be all doom and gloom, but you are going to have to kind of pull yourself up by your bootstraps and take some ownership and and some accountability and, and really start to look at your habits and look at what you're doing every day. Yeah. It's kind of that classic, like none of this is your fault, but it is still your responsibility. Yeah. 
most of it is within your control still. Yeah, exactly. It, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of people hold themselves to really high standards, especially if you're if you're someone who is coming from, you know, a fitness background. If you've been someone who's been an athlete your whole life, you know, you've been active, you haven't dealt with energy level issues. It's going to feel really hard when you start having those specific side effects because you're like, no, 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 like this isn't who I am. Like it can feel like a a straight Mm -hmm. up, like full stop identity crisis. But it's like, even though that's happening and it's really hard, you know, and we always say like, you just, you can scale down the efforts a little bit, continue to check the box for activities and core values and yeah, do your best to, to manage the symptoms. It does tend to improve for people you know, after the postmenopausal phase, like you, you do kind of enter in like a new phase of your life. There are many women who say they experience like improved clarity after menopause is over and like higher rates of happiness for many women who are in their fifties. Like you're still, if you're a working professional, like that's still prime working time. Like you have a yeah. lot that you, you can contribute and a lot of life left, but there, yeah, there is that the period of time where it can be quite challenging, but it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that you need to just like lay down and let it, you know, wash you away into the ocean, never to be seen yeah. again. It's yeah, but it's frustrating. I do think a lot of people come to us and come to nutrition professionals because they're, they're not getting the answers that they need from their doctors. And so it's like, well, maybe someone who comes from a more holistic background can help me. And I I think that the lack of general information about women's health, specifically women's health, creates a lot of space for misinformation in fitness and nutrition and very predatory marketing. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that marketing, unfortunately, comes from people with MDs and doctors in the spaces who are like, hmm, I bet I can write a book that promises to solve, you know, the problems of menopause or whatever and sell millions of copies. And they do. M stands for medical, not moral. Yeah. (laughs) Well, there was actually... I just came up uh, with that. That's pretty good. (laughs) I think there's, there's been several attempts at pushing legislation that limits the type and scope of, of books and publications that doctors are allowed to write, which I think is I mean, crazy. people still want to make money, whether you, whatever your degree is, whatever your career is. Yeah. What's, what's the worst thing that you've seen in the like menopause nutrition space? I don't love the people that push like Dutch testing mm-hmm. and bioidentical compounded hormones onto people. And they sort of do it under the guise that you know, this is a more natural approach. It's safer. And the Dutch test is like, it's one that just makes me want to scream because it seems like a super legitimate test, right? Like you you look at it and it's like 18 pages long and it's giving you all these different readouts of all this stuff that largely is BS. Yeah. Right. And it's expensive. it's expensive so like, as hell. It must, be, and it's, it must be good. Exactly. Right. And it's, it's usually used to push some sort of supplements that whatever physician's office is pushing this test in the first place, they usually sell them and they're usually not covered by insurance. So you pay all out of pocket for it. They're massively expensive. This is a population of people that's vulnerable, right? So it's, it's easy to prey on that fear or that feeling of helplessness that a lot of us have in this space that like nothing I do is working. So let me just, let me get this test. This test is going to tell me everything that's wrong with me. And that's, that's what's promised. I just, that predatory behavior just. uh, mm. Yeah, we agree on that. Mm. I mean, I don't really pull punches when it comes to that type of thing on the internet. And I find the the hormone balancing and the, you know, all the promises that are out there to be quite frustrating because people end up spending a lot of 
money and like most upsettingly a lot of their time on these protocols and it's just it's none of them really work they're expensive they're exhausting and they just they further kind of confuse and complicate things and when that doesn't work for someone there's a lot of shame like oh they're there actually is something wrong with me. Yeah. And that's not fair and it's not nice. And yeah, it seems to be something that's so exclusive to women and not even, you know, the menopause population for sure. But you see the same type of predatory marketing towards postpartum women. You see Mm -hmm. the same type of thing in, you know, in baby accessories and things. And it's all, you know, all based on fear and specifically with women who have just had babies, their brain chemistry is a little bit different. And so Mm -hmm. like their primary focus is keeping this child alive. And so when you come out with a product or something that, you know, it it reduces the risk of SIDS by this amount or whatever, like there's such a huge market. Well, that like predatory material does not discriminate. No, I mean, it targets people in their 20s and their teens and their 30s. Like who are just the general population who want to lose weight because they're pressured by society standards. Wait, can we go Mm -hmm. so far as to say that most of the marketing of fitness and nutrition is predatory? It's predatory. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Let's, let's say that. We'll just put that out there. Yeah, I would, I would a hundred percent agree with that. And anytime I see like these influencers and you go to their page and it's like hormone balancing expert, I'm just like, I just, uh, Oh my gosh. And I'm like, where did you, do you have any credentials? Whatsoever? Are you an endocrinologist? Yeah, no? yeah. You're not. Oh, okay. you have your nasum certificate. And if you're using yeah. it, awesome. if you're using it, <laughs> saying it's from Jeez. seed cycling or yeah. something nutrition, it's like run. Oh God. Yeah. I mean, it's the same, like, you know, anti-vaccine viral folks. And it's mm-hmm. like, Oh, are, are you an immunologist? Like, where did you? Well, it's interesting that you raise that point because this whole like bioidentical hormone thing, it sort of plays into that as well. Mm-hmm. So people that are distrusting of medicine and FDA approved medications, I'm sure that there are people that are going to be listening to this that are already rolling their eyes. They have that level of distrust for all government agencies, especially the FDA, big pharma, all that type of stuff, which I could probably talk to you about for hours and hours on end since we both have that background. Mm -hmm. But, you know, bioidentical is sort of sold as it's not a, you know, compounding pharmacies. They're not, these are not drugs that are passed through the FDA. So you can trust them. They're (laughs) safe. You know, that nobody, nobody slipped money under the door to, to get this FDA approved. It's sort of, it's, it's along those same lines that it's yeah. it's sort of seen as a, a sort of natural, holistic approach to balancing your hormones that I think a lot of people, especially these days, are really susceptible to that type of marketing. Yeah, there is nothing safe about compounded hormones. No testing whatsoever. No safety testing, no None. validation. And every None. time it gets made, it's different. It's different. Yeah, it's just it's nuts. It's that whole appeal to nature fallacy, which mm-hmm. is a fallacy. And again, opens if it's up- made in a lab, it's synthetic. Like I hate to break it to you, but all of these hormones, except for Premarin, all of these hormones are made in a lab. They are all synthetic. Yep. There's bioidentical is a marketing ploy. Yeah. I mean, it's like using the word natural. Like that's, mm-hmm. it's the same thing. It just preys on like, Ooh, bio. It's not pharmaceutical. I'm like, no, it's pharmaceutical, <laughs> just less controlled, but way less controlled. You know, if you're into like the wild, wild west of pharmaceutical products, then sure, let's do like. compound. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, yeah. <laughs> uh, come on, Bob. You learn something new every day, right? <laughs> yeah. Totally. <laughs> yeah. 
So how do you, I know we've, we've mentioned this, but how do women start to demand more from their medical professionals? That's a hard one too, because you do have to really start to go into these appointments and be aggressive. I mean, I had to, the last doctor that I saw at Duke, I was like, listen, somebody needs to start listening to me. I said that this is, I don't care how young I am. You need to start listening to me. There is something absolutely wrong with me. And I, I came in with like a stack of papers of the position papers from the North American menopause society website. Like I came in to the appointment with the position papers and she's like, do you want me to get you an appointment with a NAMS provider? I'm like, that would be great. That's, that's a, good, a great place to start. Do that. It's unfortunate that that's kind of where we're at right now with all of this is that you do have to come to your appointments really armed with data, with facts and demand that. And that's why I will always recommend for people to go to the Menopause Society page. And there's actually a section where you can type in your zip code and look for a NAMS practitioner in your area. That is the first step to getting better care than just going to your PCP or even your usual GYN. Because if your normal GYN is not a NAMS provider, they might not be, they might want to check your bloods. They might want to run blood like that that, because they just don't know. They're not educated on that. So that's the first place to go is to go to the Menopause Society page and look for a practitioner in your area and start there. And then I would just really recommend coming armed with as many data points and facts as you can, especially when it comes to your symptomology and presenting that to them. And you just, unfortunately, you have, you just have to kind of keep trying. And that's what sucks about it because I had eight doctor's appointments before somebody finally started listening to me and it shouldn't be that way, but it's kind of how it ended up. It is. And I think the website for the North American Menopause Society is really easy. It's menopause.org. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's tons of references and links on there. Like I said, you can go to the find a practitioner link and just type in your zip code and you can even set a search criteria for, you know, like 50 miles away, 10 miles away, whatever it is. And then they also have their position papers there. So you can look up stuff like the Dutch test. They have a specific paper on the testing that they recommend and don't recommend yep. the hormonal therapy that they recommend and don't recommend. It's all on that website. Yeah. That's awesome. And then what to do if, if you feel like nothing is working? That's a hard one. And I I saw that in your, your outline and Mm -hmm. I was like, Hmm, I don't, I don't know what I'm going to say to this because you have to keep doing what you're doing. Keep trusting the process, keep putting one foot in front of the other. And I do think that getting in touch with somebody like tactic or Maui athletics Mm -hmm. or somebody that is going to listen to you, that is going to help you stay consistent is clutch. Because you need, you, you're going to need somebody to kind of hold your hand through the process, but you also need people that are educated on what this phase of life entails, what it means, what's helpful, what's not. And every single day, checking the boxes and taking those steps and staying consistent. I will say that there may come a time where you have to really kind of take a look at where you are in your life. And this is actually something that I've done myself. I don't care to have a six pack anymore. That's just not my, like, you know, that used to be a a goal of mine back in my Mm. CrossFit days was to like have a nice little six pack. I could take off my shirt and run around and, you know, not feel gross, but I'm sort of coming to this place in my life where I'm accepting a bit of a different body than what I have lived in for the first 30 years of my life. And it is different. It looks different. It feels different. It acts different. It moves a little bit different, but I'm coming to a place where I'm at peace with it. I don't hate it. I'm learning to love it. I'm learning to love it in this new phase and what it's been able to give me. 
So you do kind of have to take a step back and evaluate where you are and really appreciate what your body can still do for you. And the fact that I'm still lifting heavy, I'm still running, I'm still able to get out there with Sable every day and take her, you know, walk that dog six miles a day that she needs to (laughs) get all of her energy out. You know, I can still do those things and I'm still happy. I'm still healthy. That's another part of this process is sitting down and actually facing that. Yeah. I think that's awesome. It's, I will exclude Alex from this part. She, she still has a six pack, but she just kind of, you know, those freaky genetics. You just always, gonna I have a friend like that. Yeah. It, like no matter, she's going to be 80 and everything is going to be saggy and she'll have a six pack. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. I've gone through a similar phase with my body and my fitness too. And it's not like, it's not easy. There's definitely mm-hmm. moments where you're, you're, you're like, Oh man, I like, you know, I miss looking like this or I miss, you know, being able to do these things at this level, but ultimately like there's still a lot of, you know, we still do a lot of great things with our, our bodies. I call it like a, a wellness body, a longevity mm-hmm. body. You I know. like that. Yeah. You're going to have it for, I'm going to start, I'm going to start using that wellness body. It's, my wellness yeah, body. it's a good, that's a good one. <laughs> You're going to have it for a long time and you may as well be nice to yeah. it because you can't, mm-hmm. you know, go trade it in at a car dealership. Right. And if you can figure out how to position, how to, how to love it, or at least, you know, for many people find a way to neutrality about it life tends to get a lot easier. And it I think the neutrality is, is that's sort of where I'm at right now. Yeah. It's, it's a very neutral, it's a very neutral position. And I'm not, I'm also not at a point where I care enough to do something about it. Like the, the thought of having to intentionally diet right mm-hmm. now. I, no, thank you. No, no. Yeah. Feel that. Not doing it. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I, I think that goes really nicely into the last bullet point that we have, which is managing the, you know, life transition and aging and grappling with the beauty standards for aging women. Cause I think that is what causes a lot of sort of heartache and headache during this process is letting go of being in your thirties. Cause you can't be in your thirties. And you know, there's this whole thing, you know, about aging gracefully. And I don't think there is aging great. I think there's just aging. Like men get to Mm -hmm. age. Women should just, we should get to age too. It just sort of is. I don't really know that you can say more than that because that just, I can't turn back the hands of time. I'm not going to, I'm just trying to enjoy my life here in Maui with the pup and the husband and just do all the things and experience all the things. Mm -hmm. Like I want to be able to go out to dinner whenever I want. I want to drink a nice pina colada. I want to be able to do these things and not really have to micromanage other parts of my life in order to enjoy those. I'm, I'm in a phase in my life now where I'm looking at sort of long-term Long-term health, but long-term enjoyment yeah, as well. For sure. I'm not in the stage of life where I need to worry about aging, except for the fact that when I turned 30, I started getting a lot more niggly injuries. Like I feel <laughs> not that much has changed, but I look to my mom, who's a bit of a role model in terms of aging. And she struggled for a long period of time with body image throughout her teenage years, 20s, 30s, 40s. And then she kind of like flipped a switch and started focusing on strength training and her her mid fifties. And now like she doesn't do any of that for the way that she looks. She does it for the way that she feels. And it just Mm -hmm. so happens that that helps her maintain muscle mass and her to maintain a healthy body composition for a 64 year old. She'll, she'll say, and I think she's probably said on this podcast, she just stopped giving a shit at a certain age. And like, you know, there are women out there who stop wearing bikinis and she's like, I don't know. I find bikinis more comfortable. Like, am I too old for them? Maybe, but also who cares? cares? Mm -hmm. Who cares? Yeah. 
So I like, I like that mentality that that's a definitely a good one to adopt. Just not really, not really caring. And, it, but again, like this all goes back to sort of like, you know, male standards versus women's standards. Like it's just, there's so much pressure put on us to like stay young and beautiful mm, forever. Yeah. And, and like men don't have to really worry about that. And I feel some kind of way about that. Like that just makes me really mad, but you know, it, I'm getting to a point now where like I'm married I'm not, you know, I'm not looking for some other dude. So, uh, you know, Alan knows what he married. He knows what he's got. I'm sorry, buddy. Like, this is it <laughs> for the rest of your life. Like, we're going to the grave together. So, I mean, it just, you know, I'm I'm trying to live a, a fulfilled life now with, you know, my husband and my dog and my two careers at this point. And it just, whatever body kind of shakes out from that is what shakes out from that. When I get a gray hair, I'm like, oh, people are going to start seeing oh, me as no. wiser. <laughs> you know, like how men are seen when they have a touch of gray. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Women are like, I got to dye my hair. And I'm like, no. Look, have you, I- heard, have you heard about this, this grandmother hypothesis about why females live beyond their reproductive years? And this is, this came out of like hunter gatherers, but essentially grandmothers are considered like the most valuable members of society. Mm-hmm. Because they're Jen the actually ones, talks about this in her book. Yes. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Mm-hmm. They're the ones who carry the information, who have, yep. you know, provide the wisdom. And then specifically when, you know, women are taking care of their babies, the grandmothers are out foraging for food, which is ironically where most calories in hunter gatherers mm-hmm. in their intake comes from. The men are hunting yep. because hunting raises social status, but that's not where the calories come from. It's the grandmothers who are contributing largely to the well-being of children coming up. And then most interestingly is they just, there's some data and I don't know how old it is. I just saw it on Instagram. So it could be like new or it could be like 10 years old and just making a resurgence, but killer whales are another, they're the species where they also live beyond their reproductive years. And in pods of killer whales, where there's an elder female present, the adolescent whales have fewer rake marks on them. So the Mm -hmm. older female whales are actually protecting the young whales in the pod. Do you think they're the ones that are teaching them how to overturn boats and stuff? (laughs) Probably. (laughs) How to to take out. It's the grandma killer whale. Yeah, exactly. How to dive down and take out submarines. (laughs) My my grandma always made the Thanksgiving and this Christmas turkey dinner. Yeah. So that still holds true. The grandmother theory. Yeah. And I I like this concept of like grand, like wise person more than, you know, grandmothers. So I think there are other people in society that hold similar roles. Like we're probably not going to have kids, but do, will we have a part in, you know, the upbringing of our niece and nephew? Probably so. And so I think Mm -hmm. it really does go to that whole, it takes a village thing. So the fact that our society, our modern society is so willing to write off women who are, you know, past their reproductive years as invaluable, as not important for society actually like stands in the face of anthropological data that says the exact opposite. I wanted to include that and I I had forgotten until now, but yeah, gosh. Shout out to all the grandmothers out there. And killer killer whales. Yeah. (laughs) Keep up the good work. Yeah, man. Never stop. (laughs) I wanted to ask you one question before we wrap up. It has absolutely nothing to do with this topic. Okay. Um, And I didn't put it on the outline. But you are, I really love your Instagram and your, a lot of what you share is kind of nostalgic to the 2000s. I was wondering, in your opinion, what is the worst trend that came out of the 2000s? Oh, God. Mm. <sighs> You're putting me on the spot. I know. There's also so many. 
Like trends that still exist no. now? No, just okay. like something terrible from the 2000s. I'm the- I mean, it's it has to be something with like fashion, like probably the way that we did not blend our makeup down <laughs> into our damn necks yeah. was probably the like the, you know, the dark, like what was it? The true matte? Yep. True match, whatever it was. The, no, the dream matte mousse. Yep. That's what it was. Yeah. So it was one shade. Everybody, whether you were black or white, you had one shade. I forgot about this. You had one shade. Yeah. And it was this like gross tan. Like it was, it was like a beige, like yeah. a cool beige. It was nasty. It would have worked and for me. And we all it like, like put it to like, to like right yeah, here agree. and then just left it. <laughs> there was no, there was no like blending down the no. neck. It was just, we're just going to slather this yeah. on and aggressive, leave it. Aggressive stop at the jawline. Yeah. yeah. And then the, like the overlining of the lips with like the pale, the pale lip gloss or the pale lipstick. Yeah. I like uh, I thought that might be more 90s, but it, I think it was like early 2000s. Yeah. Mine would probably be I was going to say ballet flats. And then I thought of a different one. The like the low rise bell bottom jeans oh. with the, the shirt that didn't cover your belly button. Yeah. 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 That was. And then whenever you would like bend over to tie your shoe, like your whole crack was out. Like, yeah, it was just But don't worry, because you would be wearing a whale tail thong. So you would cover it. You're good. You're fine. Nobody can tell. Your your unmentionables are covered. Got low rise jeans. I don't. I'd. No. I'm so glad that high waisted stuff is. I have a really long torso to begin with. So high waisted stuff is great for me. But the whole like. mm, No. 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 We I didn't fall that. victim to either one of those trends. You went to a school that had uniforms. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's why. <laughs> that's why. I, I also didn't have a hair straightener for the first several years of the 2000s. So my sister and I used to take turns. We would lay our hair out on, <laughs> on the ironing board. On, on the ironing board and iron it. <laughs> yeah. It, so the, the, good, the thing about the flat iron, though, was that you everybody used to always miss the back of their yep. head. So you and I have curly. I've naturally like it, it doesn't look dissimilar from yours Meredith yeah so I like I would straighten the front of it and then you would turn around and I would look like a poodle in the back like it was just it was it was like a variation of a mullet I don't even know what you would call it but it was horrific the the 90s and 2000s were so gross and I can't believe that some of those trends are coming back now like the tube tops that had the belt loops in them are coming back the all the big baggy cargo pants yep I'm like are coming back Y'all the have butterfly clips. Have fun with that. <laughs> Spaghetti straps. Those the, are popular. The zigzag part. <laughs> oh yeah. I've seen that too. Yeah. yeah. It's it's well, we're not allowed to have, you know, we're not allowed to have side parts anymore. My no, fashion style that, hasn't barely. changed from like being a toddler to now. <laughs> Except for my uniform phase when I had to wear a uniform at school. I just like have a same same clothing. Yeah. I saw like it. <laughs> thin eyebrows might be coming back i'm like look it took me i am just now getting my eyebrows back like mm, don't do it yeah. it's not worth it no it's not worth it um, my sister shaved her eyebrows once with a she like <laughs> with instead of plucking them i think this is 2001 she's like no no no. i found a faster way to do this <laughs> hold my beer <laughs> she's gonna hate alan that. shaved off his eyebrows on our honeymoon oh he shaved off one of them and he actually used my brow pencil and brow powder and drew his own back on and did a phenomenal job nice. with it. That's amazing. Yeah. I was like, you have a future in, in makeup. Cosmetics. <laughs> no kidding. Well, this has been a really wonderful <laughs> podcast, Beth. I thought that would be a fun note to end on. And it was. <laughs> Alan with one eyebrow. <laughs> if people wanted to find you on internet land, where where do they find you? So my 
Instagram handle is bpbacon13. I don't post a ton of nutrition and fitness content anymore because I got really burned out with it. So most of my stuff is like the dog and Maui. Or um, like not allowing your cats on countertops. I thought, <laughs> and I was like, it's almost Did you feel targeted by that situation. one? <laughs> <laughs> but I let it slide. <laughs> I was like, oh, no, I'm going to piss off all the cat people. Yeah. This one. The business, our business Instagram is Dr. Allen Bacon. And Allen is spelled with two L's, yeah. A-L-L-A-N, Bacon. That's our Maui Athletics Instagram handle. And then MauiAthletics.com is our, our website. Awesome. Well, mm-hmm. thank you so much for your time. I hope that it cools off there so you can enjoy everything that Maui has to offer. <laughs> yeah. And we will, we'll do this again. Yeah, I had a great time. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, guys.